Do you get tired of hearing the same old intros to podcast episodes? Me too. Hi, I'm not Jen. I'm Jessica, and I'm in rural East Panama. Jen has just created a new way for listeners to record the introductions to podcast episodes, and I got to test it out. There's no other resource out there quite like your parenting mojo, which doesn't just tell you about the latest scientific research on parenting and child development, but puts it in context for you as well, so you can decide whether and how to use this new information. If you'd like to get new episodes in your inbox, along with a free infographic on 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one, sign up at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe and come over to our free Facebook group to continue the conversation about this episode. You can also thank Jen for this episode by donating to keep the podcast ad-free by going to the page for this or any other episode on yourparentingmojo.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with someone about this episode or know someone who would find it useful, please forward it to them. Over time, you're going to get sick of hearing me read this intro as well, so come and record one yourself. You can read from a script she's provided or have some real fun with it and write your own. Just go to yourparentingmojo.com and click read the intro. I can't wait to hear yours. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. I worked in sustainability consulting for a number of years and the issues that I used to work on related to climate change have always informed my life and my parenting, even though I haven't really talked about it so much on the podcast yet. Today we're here with a guest who is going to help us understand how climate change, as well as many of the other social justice related issues that it intersects, is already impacting us and our children and give us some practical advice for what we can do about it. Dr. Elizabeth Cripps is a mother, writer, activist, and philosopher, and author of the new book, Parenting on Earth, a philosopher's guide to doing right by your kids and everyone else. She is senior lecturer in political theory at the University of Edinburgh, where she researches and teaches climate justice. She lives in Scotland with her husband and two daughters. Welcome, Dr. Cripps. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And so I wonder if we can start with uh, just a brief overview of kind of what is climate change, just so we can start on the same page without going super deep into it. So what is climate change? How is it already affecting us? And how will it continue to affect us in the future? So climate change, which is the warming of our atmosphere as a result of greenhouse gas emissions, is something that the international panel on climate change is very clear is getting worse it is real and it's caused by human action so the ipcc report has said that we need to cut our um, greenhouse gas emissions by 45 percent on 2010 levels by 2030 to avoid dangerous climate change so that's to try and avoid climate change going above 1.5 degrees c once it gets above that we're in really dangerous territory cases of extreme weather fire disease floods and these are all things that we've actually already seen happening i mean the wildfires that we've seen in california in europe the extreme drought levels of drought that parts of africa have been dealing with for a long time now the floods that we've seen for example in the uk and this is something that is forecast to get much much worse if we don't act fast on it Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to be clear, the IPCC is? Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Awesome. Thank you. And and of course, climate change doesn't affect everybody equally, right? It affects some people more than it affects other people and, and in different ways too. This idea that everybody has a need and 
the better we can be to meet each other's needs, the better we are to, 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 to function together. And I think, you know, I always knew that my kid had needs. I always knew that Ava had needs, but to, to be able to know and see that I also have needs and by being, meeting my needs, I'm so much better equipped to be able to meet her needs has been really fundamentally changing of my whole self. I, within that realized that like many others was raised with parents who disregarded my needs, who still to this day do, and being able to advocate for what I need has been and will continue to be a, a path that I am constantly walking down. But it has become our family motto that if there's a way to meet everyone's needs, that's what we're going to do. And not one person gets priority over what their needs. We just try and find a way to work together. Parenting membership is now open for enrollment, but only until midnight Pacific on Wednesday, May 15th. We have sliding scale pricing and a 100% money back guarantee. Join now to get access to everything you need to make the change that you want to see in your family life at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting membership. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the harms done by climate change tend to fall much worse on communities that are already marginalised for various reasons. So the Global South has already been suffering much worse. Even within countries, it tends to be groups who, who have less say in decision making and who are already worse off in many ways, who are hit hardest by it. So it tends to be women, it tends to be communities of colour, it tends to be Indigenous communities. So climate injustice, one way of putting it is it tends to exacerbate existing injustices. Mm, yeah. And of course, it mostly wasn't people in those communities who were responsible for generating emissions in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. Which makes it such a clear cut moral problem, such a clear cut injustice. Yes. So we're we're wading into climate as a moral issue. <laughs> and this is sort of the core of what your book does and of what your research does, which is where we start to look at the links between individual level harms that we might know, okay, I'm responsible for not hurting another person. And how does that show up in this huge thing like climate change where I can drive my car to the grocery store and who knows who that's going to hurt and how it's going to hurt them? How can we connect those two ideas. I think you, you've really hit on what's been a kind of philosophical challenge around thinking about climate change, which is that when we think about our individual moral responsibility, we tend to focus on, well, I shouldn't hurt people directly. I shouldn't go out and run my car into somebody and I should help them if I easily could. So if you can, the example that's always used is if you could save a child from drowning and it would just, you know, damage your new shoes, then it's just a moral no brainer, but that's what you should do. But in this case, we have a situation where it's not about what any one individual does, it's to do with the way that all of our actions combine or the systems that we're part of, the way of life that we're part of that's causing this harm. So we need to sort of expand the way that we think morally to acknowledge that actually, well, we can share responsibility for these problems and we can have a sort of shared or collective responsibility to act together to challenge them. And that might mean that often will mean challenging our governments, our institutions, and trying to change them rather than just focusing on our individual behaviour. And I think that's really challenging, right? Because so much of the narrative around climate change has focused on things that we need to do individually. And I know that some of the oil companies have been 
<laughs> instrumental in pushing this idea that this is an this is an individual level responsibility. But you're seeing it as like how do you see the the individual versus the the governmental responsibility? I think that they're, they're they're connected, but I think you've hit the nail on the head there in that it really suits big corporations, big oil companies, governments to present this narrative that this is, well, this is all about the decisions that individuals make in how to live their lives. It's, it's their responsibility. And actually what's going on here, it's incredibly structural. It's, it's very difficult for individuals to make low carbon choices because of the way their societies are set up. It would be extremely unfair to leave it to some individuals who happen to be motivated to make all these changes. So actually, the thing that we need to do if we're actually going to tackle climate change is focus on, on that collective change, on how we can work together to bring that about. But actually changing our individual lifestyle can be an important part of that. It sends an important message to governments and corporations. So the more people sort of shift towards plant-based eating, for example, the more corporations are likely to respond by producing more vegan products. And then that makes it easier for more people to follow suit. So there are things that there are ways in which these lifestyle changes really contribute to it. And also, I think it's morally important not to be sort of complicit in the harm if, if we can avoid it. But I think the priority here has to be, well, look, how can I be part of bringing about collective change? Okay. And so kind of digging a little bit more into the example you gave of, you know, rescuing the person or saving your shoes. I think in, in that case, it's fairly clear to me what I should do because I I can save a child <laughs> yes. and I can clearly see the action that's going to come from it. And I know that the thing that I choose to do, the choice I choose to make is going to have that action, you know, that intended effect or not. But I also read somewhere and I've wanted to cite this forever and I cannot find where I initially read it, that there aren't enough resources on the planet for everybody to live in the way that an unhoused person in the US lives at the moment. And so if I'm talking about the choices that I can make within this framework of, yes, that's not enough and we need to be doing other things, but I'm thinking about, you know, driving less and, and eating less red meat and all those kinds of things, it seems as though the suite of options that I have available to me is not actually going to get us to where we need to go. So how can I reconcile those two things? So I think there's a big difference there between thinking about, well, what can I change or even, you know, lots of different individual people in, in the UK or the US choosing to make these individual lifestyle changes? What can that actually achieve versus, well, how could we live in a way that actually enabled people everyone to live a, a valuable, sustainable life. And that's why I think it's crucially important to keep the focus on, well, how would we need to organise our society? What would our transport infrastructure need to look like, for example? What would the way that we produce um, food and build our homes need to look like to be sustainable? And then, of course, as you say, there is still this very challenging point that says, well, actually, we do have limited global resources. And in order to, to live sustainably, to live within planetary boundaries, it's not impossible. Um, it's certainly possible to meet everyone's basic needs. But going beyond that in terms of increasing quality of life, we need to think in terms of, of technological changes, but also thinking in, in terms of how we value the way we live, maybe putting less focus on economic growth and more on the other aspects of human flourishing, like the experiences we have, the opportunities that we have to engage with nature, and all those things which actually sort of go deeper and say, well, maybe we need to assess what matters in life slightly differently. And then actually, we do have a, a possibility of living sustainably. 
Yeah. And I'm thinking I, I'm going to forget the exact uh, date, but GDP has only been around for what, 70 years or something as a measure of human growth and, you know, the <laughs> everything that's valuable in the world. <laughs> and the, the idea of measuring our gross domestic product as the thing that we care about more than anything else has not been allowed, around for very long. So what if we just stopped using it? We started exactly. using it at some point. What if we just stopped? <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, there's there's some very interesting, I mean, I'm not an economist, but there's some really exciting kind of economic approaches, like sort of donut economics, which try and rethink the way that we should assess our economic progress and work within planetary boundaries and assess human well-being more broadly than just in terms of, of GDP. I'm wondering about the extent to which you see shame as intersecting this topic. And, and this has come up in a couple different areas for me recently. We talk a lot about white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism on the show. And I've talked with a listener who thinks that I talk about those things entirely too much. And we actually had a, a moderated conversation on the show about her perspective on this and my perspective on this. And I think ultimately what we got to is there's sort of a sense of shame here. Like I'm complicit in this and I don't know what to do about it. And so it's easier to kind of turn away. And I also saw that in research on boredom for an episode uh, on that topic, where a lot of students will say, oh, you know, in Australia, Aboriginal history is boring. In Germany, the history of the Holocaust, oh, that's boring. We don't want to do that. And the researchers are positing that maybe people are kind of turning away from this and calling this boring because the idea of considering yourself complicit in a way, even though you weren't alive at the time that the actual actions were happening in some of these cases, that the thought of bit that complicity is just too overwhelming and too shaming. Do you see something similar showing up in the climate change work? I think it's really interesting. So the reason I sort of talk um, a bit about shame in the book is because I think that when we are talking about these collective harms, it no longer makes sense to talk about kind of individual guilt or blameworthiness so much in the way that we would, you know, if it's one individual going out and punching another in the face. The sort of participation in these ways of life which are harmful, it seems more appropriate to think about something like shame which attaches to do with, with you know, harms that you're part of or, or things that you're part of rather than directly hinging on, on what you choose to do as an individual. But as you say, it's a really difficult emotion to live with and people will often react by turning off. And I think that's that's something that we see generally with climate emotions. They're not easy things to sit with. They're fear. Some people feel guilt, frustration, anger, and yes, shame. And there is a real temptation just to shut them down and to ignore them and try and live as though we don't know what's going on. And there, I think psychologists can be really helpful. I mean, they're helpful because they identify how bad that is for us, that we just end in this kind of process of kind of disavowal or doublethink, where we're trying to know something and not know it and play all these kind of mental games, do all these mental gymnastics to try and make things make sense that we're deciding to do. And actually moving through that, facing up to these emotions, even though they are really difficult and working through them to come out with a kind of more of a determination or an earned hope is actually a really valuable process. But yes, you're right. It's one that it can be very difficult to do or to encourage people to do. Yeah. And I mean, obviously your book is about parenting. 
parenting climate change together. And so I want to get super specific because obviously that's who we're talking to here in our listeners. And so you describe in the book a number of examples of parents giving their children large numbers of presents for holidays and birthdays, big tuition bills for private school, expensive holidays. And I want to quote a bit from the book here. And you say, when we have kids, it's tempting to think that gives us a kind of moral free pass from fulfilling many of our responsibilities as global citizens. We think it's okay to spend all we have on toys and books and gadgets, birthday parties and holidays, sports coaching and job or university applications. More than that, we sometimes think it's what we should do. It's not selfish or immoral. It's part and parcel of being a good parent. In thinking like this, we make two serious moral mistakes. We overestimate some of the things we should do for our own kids when others need us to. And in the process, we let down the very children we are trying to protect because we're mistaken about what that means in this fragile world. And I think that this really gets to the heart of how many people who are listening to the show may be approaching this topic. And so can you dig into this a little bit for us? Tell us what you mean when you're saying that that phrase to us, that paragraph. So I think there is this idea in the global north, and, and goodness, this is something that, that, you know, I do myself as well, we all do, that we tend to think, well, being a good parent means devoting myself as much as I can to my child. It means spending time with them, loving them, and of course it does. But we also tend to think, well, the way that we rightly express this is trying to buy them things, lots of toys, opportunities, think of worry about their economic future, worry about, you know, their school and, and so on. And in the process, I think there's a real danger that we've forgotten, firstly, what other people need and that other people still also have a claim on us. And secondly, well, what more fundamentally our children might need. Because we, on the sort of, on the first point, we're still moral agents. I mean, we still have these, what I call about responsibilities as, as global citizens, but broadly speaking, come from this fact that, you know, there is a real problem in being part of of complicit in a way of life that's harming people, that we should help people in need if, if we can, the kind of basic intuition that I think most people would share. And when we become parents and have this special responsibility to these new people, that doesn't, that doesn't go away. And so, yes, I think we can legitimately prioritise our children over someone else in need if they're both in need, and we can prioritise doing things for our children, giving them goods and things over, you know, providing extra things for other people. But fundamentally, when it comes to a, a clash between maybe giving our children music lessons or something versus helping people who are really in need, it, it doesn't look so so straightforward to say, well, actually, my special duty to my child trumps everything else. So that's the first moral mistake. And then the second one is, as I say, that when we think about the world that we're leaving for our children, the future that they're going to grow up in, all the, and climate change, but also things like antibiotic resistance, the possibility of future pandemics, this kind of ongoing injustice that we've already touched on in this conversation. When we think about that, actually, it's going to matter deeply to them that we're turning them out into a world which is incredibly flawed, possibly more than it will matter to them, you know, whether they've been taught to play the violin or paid to go to football coaching or bought 9,000 toys or whatever it is. So I think there is this real question of, well, have we forgotten what's going to matter most to our children as well as what we owe to other people when we think in this way? And I'm wondering the extent to which you are thinking about this when you're thinking about the violin lessons or whatever it is. <laughs> How much does that factor into the daily decisions that you're making in your life? 
And it's, no, I mean, it's hugely difficult because I don't know exactly what the balance is for different people. And that's one thing that I definitely talk about in the book, but I can't go out and say, well, you should always make exactly this decision because for different parents, it's going to be a different set of values and a different process. I can only say, well, look, when we're weighing these things up, these different things that will matter to our children and things that we could do for them or that we could do for other people, there are some things that we can ask ourselves like, how fundamentally important is this to a good life? Or if my child could look back from 2050 at this pivotal moment in time, what would they rather I have focused on? And I don't know exactly what the balance is. I try to kind of find some kind of way involving, you know, giving opportunities to my children, the ones that that perhaps matter most to them or to me, but also, you know, keeping time and money to to tackle global challenges as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're almost talking about like a rubric for making decisions, right? And I think that's that can be really helpful for parents. <laughs> yeah. um, and and I use a similar one as well. I actually used to teach a sustainability MBA class on life cycle assessment, which is the tool to to actually understand the trade offs between the environmental impacts of products and services. And at the end of the class, the students would always say to me, "How do you even manage to go through a grocery store when you're constantly making these trade offs?" And I would tell them, you know, I, I have this kind of rubric that I use where I'm looking to see is the fruit organic or not, and it's not that I think organic fruit is better for me. It's that I don't want the workers to be around the pesticides. But if their organic fruit is coming from thousands of miles away and the local fruit is not organic, then I'm going to buy the local fruit because I think the climate change impacts are far greater on everybody, on me and everybody else, than the impact of the, the pesticides. So that forms kind of a rubric that I use to more quickly make decisions rather than getting paralyzed in front of the display of oranges every time. Um, and so it's so what you're saying is that we can sort of use this idea of, is my child going to look back on this pivotal moment and say, yes, this was the right decision? Are they going to kind of take this perspective of this was the right decision to make for me in, as I was growing up and for the other citizens of the world? I'm, I'm wondering, is there any more steps in that rubric for you or that you've seen other people use that would be helpful to parents who are listening? So I think that the first thing that it's helpful to do is to think about, recognise it as a long-term thing. So I think if we try to agonise over every single decision, so if, you know, every time my children want to stop at the corner shop on the way home from school and say, I really want an ice cream, mummy, I start thinking, well, do I buy them an ice cream or do I give extra money to UNICEF or, or whatever? Do I read them a bedtime story or spend more time on, on activism? I think it helps to kind of think long term, well, what are the things which, you know, I really think we need to ring fence because they're so important for my children's upbringing and for the, the projects that matter to us as a family. And then, as it were, protect them and then make space for these other things which are also deeply important. And I think once we do that over the long term, then the odd decision that goes one way or the other isn't going to be, mm -hmm. <laughs> isn't going to be something that we have to agonise over yeah. so much. So I think that definitely helps. I then think that there are things that we can do in terms of thinking about, well, how do we approach this? Do we focus more on, on lifestyle changes? Do we focus more on collections? And I talk about, well, I think that for many reasons, we, we have to think about this as a collective, but then we can think about, well, how we can usefully play a part in this. You know, what talents do you have? What organisational skills do you have? Do you have spare money, spare time or both or, or neither? You know, what can you actually 
contribute and how most useful you can do that so i think there's there's things like that that we can do to decide well what should i do with the time or money i've i've carved out and then as as i say there is this this difficult balancing act between the other things my children need from me and this project which is also important for them and there i do think you know really trying to focus on what children and and us as families really need and will contribute most to flourishing rather than you know perhaps that the things that we're taught to think matter because they're consumer goods which seem really important or you know other passing fads and then as i say thinking well let's try and think about this from a long-term point of view of course right now my child's going to be demanding the latest plastic gadget or whatever but if they could look back how would they broadly speaking rather i had divided my time and energy right now yeah. And I think a, another idea that came up in the book is that, that really resonated for me was the idea that donating a thousand dollars and not that everybody has a thousand dollars, but just as a, a kind of a, a benchmark, thousand dollars to a carbon cutting charity could be 25 times more effective than the biggest individual level changes you could make. I mean, that, that really was a shift for me. I didn't know that before. And so even if you don't have a thousand dollars, right, that's still an amount of money that you are able to give to a charity that's doing that kind of work could be super, super meaningful. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's recognising that we can do a lot by being part in various ways, whether it's financially or in terms of contributing our efforts to these NGOs or other groups who are combining to work towards political and corporate change. And I mean, as I say, I do think the individual changes can play an important part within that. But the key goal has to be the collective. So if we're, you know, if we can do both, great. But if you can only do one, then I would probably prioritise trying to bring about collective change. Yeah. And related to that, I think, is the idea of seeing how your little drop combines with all the other little drops. And I'm yes. sure folks have had the experience of maybe donating to a GoFundMe or to a Kiva uh, page where you're the first potential donation to this large amount that somebody's requesting. And it's like, is this actually going to make a difference? Whereas if you're closing the gap between all of the people who've donated and the little bit that's remaining, it's like, oh, my little drop feels really meaningful. Yes. <laughs> when actually all those drops are meaningful, right? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's such a good example because it really brings out, I mean, this is a really important sort of idea in thinking about this philosophically because it's so easy to think well what I do isn't going to make any difference you know whether it's turning down my heating or not flying or whether it's going to a march or contributing to a, a climate or for that matter a, you know an anti-racism charity you might think well I'm not going to make any difference but actually as you say one way and um, the philosopher Julia Nevsky talks about this that you can maybe think about it as well am I going to help to harm and we've got this group of people who between them could make a really big difference and, and I'm one of them and it's kind of still up for grabs which way this is going to go. So I can think of it as being part of that important that important move. Again, it's part of thinking less about ourselves as individuals and more about what we can achieve collectively. Yeah, it's almost very US context, but imagining yourself as a swing state voter. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And I'm also curious as to how weird country specific, you know, the Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic country specific, 
the way that we're thinking about this is, and this has come up actually just in the last couple of weeks, I've been reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And again, very US uh, focused, but he describes taking a trip to India relatively early in his career and seeing how other people in other cultures, I mean, India specifically, but also in, in many other cultures around the world, think about morality very differently than people in the US think about it, where you're presumed to be an individual and you are responsible for yourself and not really for very much beyond that. And I'm curious as to, um, firstly, the framework that you're developing is obviously fits within a Western Eurocentric culture. How much can we assume that translates to others? And are there ideas from the way that other people think about morality that would be helpful to inform the way that we could address it within the context of climate change? I've had an amazing five years as part of the membership. And I think for me, the most noteworthy thing is that I came looking for more tools and more information to meet the situation as it was when I joined. And what I got was so much more than that. And the real value has been in my own personal development, in the clarity I've had towards what my own expectations were for my family and for myself, and being able to move away from how do I fix this problem that's coming up for me right now and more towards how can I embody my own values and be the person and the parent I want to be and learn to follow my own inner compass as we go through challenging times. The parenting membership is now open for enrollment but only until midnight pacific on Wednesday May 15th. We have sliding scale pricing and a 100% money back guarantee. Join now to get access to everything you need to make the change that you want to see in your family life at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting membership. So I think it's, yeah, so I, I try and start in this book and actually in my other one too to, from the sort of fairly uncontroversial moral ideas. So the, the idea that, you know, there's something problematic about harming other people is one that would be pretty widely shared across many philosophical and, and indeed religious and cultural viewpoints. But as you say, that kind of individualist way of, of approaching things is, is a very Western one. And actually, there is a lot that we can learn when it comes to responding well to climate change, but also actually to the, all the ways that we kind of live in conjunction with the natural world in a very exploitative way, which is also worsening things like antibiotic resistance and the threats of future pandemics. We can actually learn a huge amount from indigenous communities, for example, who found much more connected and respectful ways of, of living and engaging with nature and who tend to think about these things more collectively. So I think there is, there is a great deal that we can learn. I think, I mean, it's also, as you say, I mean, I, I write very much from the position of somebody in the global north and I'm kind of aware of my own privilege. So to some extent, I'm, I'm conscious that I, I'm only, I can only really presume to speak to people who are broadly speaking the same position because, you know, it would be utterly presumptuous and inappropriate for me to start telling people who are already dealing with the realities of climate change or, you know, have been dealing with generations of, of racist policies directed against their communities for me to say, oh, this is how you should live. What I'm trying to say is, well, as parents who have this privilege, who should be concerned for our own children, but also for the, the victims, more broadly speaking, of these injustices, this is what we can do. This is what we should be doing and reflecting on. But at the same time, I would be incredibly wary of any kind of white saviour style approach, which says that means we just sweep in and have all the answers and solve all these in a kind of white middle class type type of way. This should be about inclusive activism, listening to the vulnerable communities, listening to, to the voices of those people who are entitled to be heard. So it's, it's very much about, well, 
how can we reflect on and use our privilege rather than how can we just decide what's going to happen? Yeah. And I I will say that was one of the things I appreciated most about the book is you are very conscious (laughs) of your place and and of, of not overstepping that. And I really appreciated that perspective that you brought to it. So... And I think that that kind of leads to one of the choices that many of the listeners of this podcast have that many people in many other parts of the world don't have, which is the decision to have children or not have children and to decide how many children they want to have. And and I will say, I don't know how common this is, but climate issues were a factor in my decision to have children. And there were, I mean, the other part of the story is I didn't like children. (laughs) (laughs) So there was sort of that part of it. But I would say about equal weight, the not liking children part. And the I think it would be irresponsible of me to have a child part. And, you know, conversations with my husband and those kinds of things happened. And and ultimately we ended up having one and will not have any more than one, partly because I would be a much worse parent to more than one and partly because I want to minimize the impact that I and my decisions are having on the world. And so I think my sense is that this is a relatively uncommon way of approaching the decision to have children or how many children to have. When I see people posting in online communities, this doesn't really factor into the decision that they're having. And so I'm wondering, can you give us a framework for how you would think about approaching this decision or maybe how you have thought about it? this decision for yourself. So, uh, well, yeah, I think I can I can do both because what I try and do in that chapter is sort of reflect on it philosophically, but kind of think about it, what I've done rather than, again, for reasons that we've talked about, rather than sort of try and make, presume to make decisions for, for other people, particularly when it comes to a choice that's so, so personal as this. So there's sort of three reasons, I think, why these concerns would play into our decisions about family size. So one is this, the fact that having a child in a country like the ones that we live in is one of the biggest impacts that you can have on carbon emissions. The other is just fear for the world that we would be bringing a child into. And that's what we see with the birth strikers and some others saying, you know, I just don't want to to do that to a child, as it were. And then there's also a third one, which doesn't get talked about as much, but actually, interestingly, you you um, indirectly alluded to there, which is this idea that actually doing all the other things we should be doing for our existing child or for you know everyone else in this incredibly challenged world takes up a lot of time. The more children I have, in some ways, the harder it will be for me to give that time either to other people or to my existing children. And I think that they're all understandable and valid reasons. I don't ultimately think that that they're sort of knockdown reasons not to have children. I certainly hope they're not since I have two. But because it's an incredibly demanding thing not to have a child if you want to. I mean, it would be a huge sacrifice. And as we've talked about, this is a collective crisis. Actually, what we do as individuals is only a part of bringing about change. And if you compare, for example, the impact that having a child, the carbon impact having a child, I think in the States is seven um, tons annually, I think, and in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, whereas it's, it's much smaller, something like 1.4, I'd have to check that, in France. So the difference that policies can make to the impact having a child is huge. So again, this comes back to, well, we mustn't put all the pressure on individuals, particularly in this case on individual women and how they how they use their bodies. And it would be very demanding. So I think that you know, ultimately, it's a reason. It's a reason that we certainly factored in in making our decision. But I don't think it's a knockdown. We shouldn't have children. 
And again, the sort of fear for our children's future is very legitimate and very understandable. And to some extent, I kind of worry. Another reason why I think we owe it to our children to do something about this is that the world that their children would face could really be very dire if we don't. And they would be left with this as a real sort of searing dilemma. But I think at this point, you know, there is a third option, which is that we have children and we work together to make sure that they have a good world rather than either terrible world for our children or don't have children. So for me, it ended up being balanced all these concerns and we, we decided to stop at two children, although I would have loved to have more, probably would have wanted to have four or things being equal, but that seemed like the right decision for us. But I don't, because different people can value family size so differently for different reasons, and often those reasons are associated with past injustices. So for example, I read some, some studies that suggested that women of colour in the States can particularly value being able to have and raise large families of their own biological children precisely because of the abominable racial injustices that their community faced in the past. So I just don't think it would be appropriate, in fact it would be outrageous for for, you know, a white woman like me to start saying, oh, well, you should all be stopping at two children. That, that's just not different. Communities will have their own reasons for valuing family size differently. So all I can say is, you know, this was how it factored into, into my decision making, but different people will be making their own decisions. Yeah. And so it's, it's more about awareness that this can factor in, right? And r rather than a prescriptive, you know, that this, this is what you should do coming out of it. But here are some considerations that you can use that could impact your decision to have children or how many children to have. Exactly. I mean, th there are moral reasons here to take it into consideration, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be overriding for all people. Yeah. Okay. And so I think a lot of this is, is really linked to the idea of fairness, right? And one of the examples that really stuck out to me in your book was your child's feeling horrified that anyone might have to experience what would happen if a car's airbags were to break. And you said it had never happened to you and you would hope it wouldn't happen to her. And, and your six-year-old just kind of burst into tears and said, I don't want it to happen to anybody. <laughs> and so I think our children have this really strong sense of of morality and of fairness. But over time, through the experiences we have, I mean, we ultimately end up with adults who can walk past a person lying on the street and not offer to help. And we can kind of see photographs of people dying in a newspaper and turn the page and look for what else is happening in the world. And so it seems as though our culture does a really good job of teaching us that we should stop seeing things that otherwise, when we were little, we wanted to change. And today, we might still want to change as well. And so I'm sort of seeing this as an example of a way that we could learn from our children, right? Our, our education system is based on the premise that we know what is right, and we will teach that to our children, and then they will learn it, and they will be better people. But I'm looking at this from a perspective of, is it possible that we're the ones getting this wrong, and that we could actually learn something from the way our children are, are perceiving this? What do you think? I think that's completely right. I mean, and it's really interesting that because our children, I mean, certainly looking at, at my little girl there, they have this kind of intuitive sympathy or desire that things don't go wrong for their fellow humans. Maybe I'm generalizing too much, but certainly that there seems to be this kind of capacity for caring about things very deeply. And I think that we as a society, we sort of tend to respond by, as it were, trying to toughen them up in the way that, you know, you hear kind of anecdotal stories of 
affluent British families kind of teaching their children not to care about the suffering of, of animals when they're engaging in, in sort of sports in the same way that, you know, we can imagine Roman families teaching their children to toughen up by taking them to an arena to watch the games. And, and, and maybe, you know, rather than go through this process, which, as you say, we do, we get to adulthood and we, we are able to just flick past the stories of, of suffering. Maybe instead of doing that, we should sort of stop and think, well, what are our children telling us in their reaction there? And I think there's a lot of other ways in which we can learn from our children. So one thing I talk about in the book is sort of one of the psychological tools that we can use to kind of move out of, of climate apathy is if trying to reconnect with nature. And that's something that our children can do already. They can become incredibly absorbed. I mean, again, and, and I joke with my, my little daughter that I talk about in the book, which she just would sit there just watching just some tadpoles wriggling around in, in a pond. And would be so completely absorbed and I would just be distracted and thinking about, well, I could take a photo of her, I could put this on social media or, or whatever. But she, she had that kind of capacity to pay attention, which is something that adults could really usefully relearn. And of course, young people are also leading the way in activism in many ways. And that's something that I think we have to be really conscious of as parents and, and kind of being part of that and, and respecting what, what they've done and their voice while at the same time realising it shouldn't be their problem to solve. Yeah. And, and what you said about nature really reminded me of just an interaction I had with my daughter yesterday where she was at a summer camp and I don't even know what the curriculum topic of the day was, but she came home and I said, what did you do today? And she said, uh, we watched a dragonfly emerge from a pupa. And that was uh -huh. just some, you know, random thing happening on a leaf nearby where she was eating her lunch. And that was the thing she wanted <laughs> that to was tell the excitement. <laughs> Not whatever it was the grownups were trying to teach her that day. And so, yeah, so, so that capacity for wonder and excitement over just something super simple that's happening. I think we, we have lost, we've lost a sense of play as well and of approaching life in a playful way and of playing regularly. And I think a lot of creativity comes in play and maybe the way out of some of this challenge involves a lot of playful thinking to bring the creativity that we need to find solutions to problems that may seem intractable. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think in some ways, they're all kind of examples of the way in which that as a society, we've become very consumerist, very materialistic, and our children kind of go through this process, which actually is very bad for their mental health of associating more and more value with, you know, what they can buy, having the latest gadget. Whereas when they're in their early childhood, they are, you know, absorbed in, in imaginative play and they find, you know, worlds for themselves in this or they can, you know, be totally happy just watching a frog for 10 minutes or so. And I think it is, it comes back to what we were saying about, well, what should we really value when we're measuring what a good life looks like? And so for parents who are starting to think about this and thinking, I don't have time. The, the lens that I was, when I was thinking about how do we approach this was a conversation that I had with a woman of color recently that really has stuck with me. And she said, I don't know if I can fully understand what it's like to be a white person, but I think I can do that more easily than you can imagine being a person of color. And of course, I think she's absolutely right. And she said, you know, as an example, I wouldn't have to worry about whether the person driving towards me and my child in the street is going to speed up as we're approaching the crosswalk because they're racist. And of course, having to go through life thinking about those things is truly awful and is our responsibility as white women and white people to shift our, our thinking and our child's thinking on those things so that uh, this woman and, and her child don't have to have this experience. But it got me thinking, what is it like to be a white person? And the perspective I came up with was, I am relatively privileged, right? 
I don't have an incredibly high degree of stress in my days, but I do work with a lot of parents who do. And I think that even though we're not worrying about the car speeding towards us in the crosswalk, it's almost like all the other things expand like a gas to fill that empty space. <laughs> and I, I bring this up because I think a lot of parents who are listening to this are thinking, well, I would love to care about other people's children and to do more work on climate activism and climate justice. But I'm at the end of the rope just thinking about my children. Like, how can I possibly do this? How, how would you respond to that? What would you tell a parent who might be thinking that? Well, the first thing I say is that I completely sympathise. I mean, I feel the same and it's, it's so much to juggle being a parent emotionally and actually that it is it is really hard and I do I mean I remember my sister saying to me some years ago when something I'd been worrying about had turned out to be not something to worry about she said oh well what would you worry about now and I was like I'll just move something else up my list there's like this constant (laughs) set of things that I could worry about so we do always we do always have the capacity to do that and of course there are I mean even within white people there are huge divergences in terms of of privilege so i mean i i am not going to speak for the parent of um, a severely disabled child who is using you know all of that well i might you know i might try and advocate for them but i'm not going to tell them what to do because you know they have so much that they have to do already for their child and then there's many parents who are really struggling because they're in the squeezed middle caring for disabled or elderly parents for example and that hugely challenging so there are going to be some people who just don't have either time or money to spare but for a lot of us i think it is a question of moving around priorities and maybe rethinking what some of the things we worry about because if you know if you're literally in a house that's on fire you don't say oh i'm not going to worry about this because i've got too many other things to worry about with my child you put that to the top of the list And I think what I'm saying is uncomfortable though it is, these challenges, these global emergencies that our children face, like climate change, have to be much nearer the top of the list than they they are for us. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I don't say it lightly because I know how hard it is, but I do think it is true. Yeah. And I also wonder if there's space to worry less, right? I don't know what was in your number two position when (laughs) the number one thing suddenly dropped out of favor, (laughs) you know, became not an issue anymore. But did that number two thing have to expand? Could you worry about it, think about it to the the same extent you already were? And is it possible that you have some now mental capacity to think about some other things like is that is that a valid way of approaching it I think it might well be and I think with our children a lot of it comes back to this sort of thing well what really matters to them actually there is a lot of psychological evidence that piling them up with with material goods consumer goods isn't very good for their mental health and actually stepping back and worrying a bit less about that and more about you know just making sure that they have some some time to play and some time with us and some walks with us or whatever can be equally or, or more valuable so i think to some extent it's sort of reassessing what we worry about in the sense of well am i why am i judging myself against other parents who are buying more for their children for example there are ways in which we can just try and rethink that mm-hmm. and then yes there are strategies that we can use to try and manage our worry list if you like can you tell us as well some of the ways that we justify not doing anything <laughs> of acknowledging this is a problem out there right maybe it makes it into the one spot number one spot but we still don't actually do very much what what are some strategies you see parents using Well, I think most people essentially 
fall back on the fact that almost nobody else seems to be doing anything about it. So yes, there, there will often be appeal to, oh yes, you know, there's so much else I should be doing. There's also just, I don't want to think about it because it's just too scary. But I think there is, a lot of it is just psychological that we are wired individually or socially to think in short-term ways. We're taught to think of things in terms of, you know, what's their economic worth. We're taught to think of the natural world as just a kind of exploitable commodity rather than something that we, we you know, we're part of and that we depend on. And all of these things give us a psychological explanation of why we do what we do. They explain it. We have kind of set attitudes and things which, which clash with, with climate change. We think that, you know, it really matters to us to be able to go on holiday abroad, for example, and that happens to conflict with the, the statistics on carbon emissions and flying in exactly the same way that, you know, the smoker will just try and, and deny the facts on, on tobacco and cancer, we will we have to adjust one of them to be able to live with ourselves. So sometimes it's easier just to adjust the, the inconvenient fact rather than, than our attitudes. But I think the important thing about all of these is that though they're completely understandable, they are still explanations rather than justifications. They are morally, you know, we have reasons to try and work beyond them and to, to challenge them and to find ways of thinking more long term, reconnecting with nature, facing up to these difficult emotions rather than trying to hide from them. I just want to shout out to Jen, to your Parenting Mojo team, and to all of the members. I am so grateful that we get to be doing this work together. I am so much more comfortable with the person that I am today. And I am so much more content because I know that I have this community that is there to support me and to really just allow me to be me. The parenting membership is now open for enrollment, but only until midnight Pacific on Wednesday, May 15th. We have sliding scale pricing and a 100% money back guarantee. Join now to get access to everything you need to make the change that you want to see in your family life at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting membership. Yeah, and I think one thing when my book is coming out in September. And one of the points I make in it is it's not only parents' responsibility to do this work, right? We Absolutely need the are. help of everybody. Yes. But I'm wondering, do you think we have a special responsibility as parents to address climate change? I do think we have a special responsibility. I don't, as you say, I think everyone has this responsibility because we are all moral agents. We all owe it to our fellow human beings to do this. But as parents, we, it's sort of widely accepted, I think, in common sense, morality, as well as sort of on sort of philosophical ways of thinking about this, that we do have things that we owe to our children because they're our children, whether we think about it as because we brought them into the world or because we made a commitment to them. We have this special responsibility for, to them. So that means that on top of the reason that we have just as human beings to care about these things, we have this additional motive, the fact that these, these people who we owe so much to and who we love deeply, they need us to act on it. And as I was thinking about that issue, I was thinking, you know, there's, isn't it kind of ironic <laughs> that the entire capitalist system relies on the free labor of mostly women 
having and raising children and then turns around and says, well, actually, you're now also responsible for fixing one of the biggest problems that capitalism has faced, <laughs> has, has created, right? The irony of that just <laughs> is like a vice sort of squeezing from both sides. Yeah, I mean, it's hugely, I mean, there's, there's so many ways in which climate injustice is gendered, but I think it can't be understood without thinking at it in those terms. Um, it's also deeply racialized. So I think, I mean, one thing to say in the book is that I am very much talking to parents. So that doesn't just mean mothers, it means fathers mm -hmm. as well, who have and share these responsibilities. But there are kind of gender implications about the fact that, you know, who tends to put in most of the work about making lifestyle changes or, you know, how you, what you eat and, and, and the things that you buy as a family. There is a risk of kind of putting more, more work on women. So there is it's, it's sort of important in tackling this fairly to have some kind of, of distribution of labour within, within the family. And interestingly, a lot of the climate activists I talked to were women. But when the ones I talked to who'd, you know, found a way of making this work, often, you know, they would be focusing more on, on the activism, but their partner, often a man, would be doing more of the other stuff to kind of balance it out. And I think, and that's kind of going back, I think, to the, the tools that we can use to find a way that works for our family. A lot of it, if, if for people who are raising children in conjunction with another parent there is this kind of well some people can focus more on one thing and then and the other person on, on more of other things and that also makes it kind of possible I think to do this yeah yeah and you know we talked a little bit about what we can learn from children through play through creative thinking uh, through their views on fairness and and I'm wondering if if we have also in addition to doing this work ourselves a responsibility to raise children who are kind of good global climate citizens, what are some ways that we can go about doing that? So it very much depends on the age of the children because, you know, there's going to be very different engaging with, with a, a young sort of preschool child to engaging with a teenager who, apart from anything else, will often have, you know, their own ideas and their own experiences from having perhaps been part of this, this movement themselves. But I think that the sort of key things are empowering children without scaring or brainwashing them so this this is sort of doing it in a, a way of, of talking openly to our children encouraging them to think about these problems and debate it um, rather than just kind of laying down the law to them but it's also about you know moving through this process from maybe engaging with nature more with young children reading them stories through to kind of highlighting instances of, of injustice or, or talking a bit more about you know the changes in the weather and so on with with older children then getting on more to the, to the science and politics but I think it is it is really important to have these conversations and one thing again this comes back to to the way in which this is a very kind of intersectional question because it's it's very tempting to say, oh, I don't want to scare my children. But I think actually, you know, for, for a white parent, we can say, well, okay, if I don't have this conversation, A, what is society? What are the things that they see on the media that they, they see around them, even in school, going to tell them about how a just world should operate, what women should have, what girls should have, how children of colour should be treated and so on. But also, you know, what are their contemporaries of colour actually facing? So, I mean, if, you know, six-year-old black boys are having to be told you can't play with a water pistol in public, then actually, I don't think it's too much to say to white parents, maybe we should be having these conversations with our children as well, so that, you know, the next generation aren't, aren't in the same situation. And equally, if girls of 
10 or 11 are being told they can't wear certain things at school because they're more likely to get attention from the boys, then it seems maybe it should be the parents of the boys who are having conversations with them at the same age. So I think that's definitely something to bear in mind when we think about this. Yeah. And you have a, a list of suggestions in the book. And as I was reading through them, and you know, obviously the ones that you've mentioned here, we're not talking about necessarily reading books with preschoolers about polar bears and ice caps. <laughs> it's not necessarily about the typical image that might come to our mind when we're thinking about climate change. It's a lot about justice. It's a lot about critical thinking. And those are conversations that we can have in so many different areas of our life, whether we're technically talking about climate change or not. Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, I think it is kind of, uh, there is there is the, the sort of bringing in of, of the science and the climate science, especially as they get older. And I think that can kind of start more with an appreciation, enjoyment of nature and then moving it out as you get older. But I think, yes, as you say, it's more about developing the kind of capacity for injustice, for justice and to recognise and challenge injustice from an early age. And this capacity for critical thinking is crucially important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for parents who are listening to this thinking, okay, I'm on board. <laughs> and I kind of committed to doing this in my work to approach it from a, you know, I'm entry level. I'm just learning this as a thing. I want to get started. And from another parent who's like, yeah, I already knew what the IPCC was. I didn't need you to define that for me. <laughs> I also want to take a bigger step. What step would you advise parents who are at those two different stages to take? So I think the parent who really, you know, is only just started thinking about this, a really helpful thing to start with can be something that the um, Dear Tomorrow project, which I talk about in the book, which is to sit down and kind of write a letter to your child in, say, 2050 and think about, you know, what will the world look like then? What would you like it to look like for them then? You know, what would you like they be, them to be able to see had happened in, in between? That, I think, can be a really helpful starting point in sort of motivating ourselves to act. I think then key things to do in terms of, you know, wanting to take action is thinking, maybe sitting down and thinking, well, you know, what can I do? What can I contribute to this collective effort? What are my skills? Am I a natural communicator? Am I really good with technology? Am I really good at organizing? What are the things that I can do? And then, you know, what groups are there in person or in line, locally or more broadly, that I can be part of, that I can work with? What others can I work with? Because I think both because we need to do this collectively, we can't do it alone, and also because that solidarity, the community of working with other people is really important, I think, in avoiding the mental health challenges that can, can come with it. For both of those reasons, I'd say then, you know, seek out your people to do this with. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for those ideas and for writing the book, which... Um, is deeply practical, <laughs> which is unusual, I think, for a moral philosophy book. <laughs> so, um, so thank you for writing something that can really make a difference, hopefully, in in the lives of parents and also in the lives of our children and our children's children as well. So, thanks for being here, Dr. Cripps. Thank you very much for talking to me. And so, listeners can find a link to Dr. Cripps's book, Parenting on Earth: A Philosopher's Guide to Doing Right by Your Kids and Everyone Else, as well as her other books and the papers that I read to prepare for this episode at yourparentingmojo.com/forward/slash/parentingonearth. Hi, this is Jess from Rural East Panama. I'm a Your Parenting Mojo fan, and I hope you enjoy this show as much as I do. If you found this episode especially enlightening or useful, you can also donate to help Jen produce more content like this and also save us from those interminable mattress ads. Then you can do that and also subscribe on the link that Jen just mentioned. 
And don't forget to head to yourparentingmojo.com to record your own message for the show. 